Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness <clears throat> these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, <clears throat> to, keep, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. This is the word of the Lord. Aloha. <laughs> so the bad news is I'm working off of almost no sleep. The good news, I've been in Maui for a week, so I'm not sure how those come together, but um, it's good to see you all. Yeah, I got, got away for a week. Um, my wife and her whole side of the family uh, went to Maui up in the Napili village area. Some of you know that area. Um, left last weekend. I got back late or early this morning, I guess is when it was. Uh, but great time, such good good time in God's uh, creation, his underwater wonders, which just I love more than anything. And, and being in warm water where a skinny guy like me doesn't get cold is just magical. And to be able to do that with my daughters was uh, especially uh, wonderful. So great, great time and good to be back with you all. Uh, we're in um, chapter 8, which is not my favorite chapter of the Bible, uh, but it actually is uh, my favorite chapter in Deuteronomy, not because it's particularly pleasant, uh, but because some of the dynamics that are brought up are just such rich, uh, deep, profound dynamics in the spiritual life, and I hope that you see that. So we're actually going to spend uh, two weeks in chapter 8. If you're just visiting us, we're in Deuteronomy this summer. We're talking about the idea of covenant, of being in a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. We're looking at Israel's covenant relationship back in the Old Testament and making parallels with our relationship with God today. So uh, two weeks on uh, chapter 8. And chapter 8 basically depicts Two circumstances that Israel found themselves in, verses 1 through 5, what we'll look at today, looks back at their time in the wilderness for 40 years, and then next week we'll look at verse 6 through 20, which looks ahead to their time in the promised land. So these two circumstances, wilderness and promised land, they were very literal for Israel, right? They literally were in a wilderness, they literally were in the promised land, but I think those two Places become these great images for life in general and these circumstances that we might find ourselves in sometimes, wilderness times and promised land times, very different times. We always want to be in one and we always want to avoid the other, uh, but we're going to find out in the next two weeks that both circumstances have great temptations associated with them and both circumstances have wonderful opportunities in them for us if we can allow God to do his work in us through each of them. So today we're going to talk about the wilderness. 
Uh, and I just want to acknowledge it's a bit ironic that I'm talking about this after a week in the promised land. I get that. Um, that's just how the timing worked out. Um, but some of you are in the wilderness right now. Uh, and uh, if you're not, you will be soon. And if you're not soon, you have friends who are or will be soon. And so I want to talk about the wilderness today. I want to talk about the wilderness in our lives and what God is up to in wilderness times. Again, for Israel, this was very literal. <laughs> uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but it becomes this powerful metaphor for our own lives today. And what I want to have you do is I'm going to ask you to um, identify a wilderness time in your life. Uh, and ideally, maybe there's something you're going through right now. Um, and I, as I'm looking at your faces, I know some of what some of you are going through right now. So you're in a wilderness season right now. Um, if you're not, what's the most recent wilderness season you've been in? Um, or maybe today you want to think about, maybe there's a good friend or a family member who's in the wilderness right now, and you might be thinking of them. I want to just articulate the wilderness a little bit for you. Here's a picture of the wilderness. This is actually a pretty beautiful picture, um, but you wouldn't want to be there for 40 years. Um, verse 15 describes it this way, that vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its snakes and scorpions. That's chapter 8, verse 15. And so I just want to talk about the wilderness, and describe it. You don't need me to, but I'll do it anyways uh, to get us inside of the wilderness. Um, first, Moses describes it as vast. You know, the, the, Israel is out in this huge wilderness, and it was so easy to get lost out there, right? I mean, what, what, what's the right path to take? It's just overwhelming and, and large. And so wilderness times can be times of uncertainty, times where maybe the road ahead is not clear. Like, I, I don't know what direction to take. And sometimes it can be a lack of clarity in very practical issues, right? A job, a relationship, a, uh, a certain life stage. And what is the right, what's the right decision to make in wilderness times or those times of uncertainty? Uh, or sometimes it can be deep spiritual uncertainty. You feel like you're in a spiritual wilderness and, and the answers that you had aren't working anymore. And the direction is unclear and you're not sure where to go. That can be a wilderness time. Uh, the wilderness is described as, as dreadful. Wilderness times fill us with dread. They're scary times. They're times of anxiety, times of fear in our lives. The wilderness is described as thirsty and waterless. It is, it is a dry time. It, it's wilderness times are times when, when God's tangible blessings are just kind of pulled back for a while and withheld for a period of time. Those real concrete expressions of God's goodness in your circumstances, like they just, they just dry up. Whether that's the finances dry up or the relationships dry up or the health. Things that you, you normally enjoy and experience are just kind of, they're gone. They're, they're, there's not much of them and you're left trying to figure out how do I live without in this season of lack. And then, of course, it's a land with snakes and scorpions. There's, there's danger in the wilderness. There's enemies in the wilderness. And sometimes, wilderness times are times where we, there's enemies out there. There's people. There's forces at work in our lives that we experience as dangerous to us, as enemies that threaten to hurt us. 
Okay, all that to say, the wilderness times are times uh, where life is painful or scary or confusing or uncertain or dry or lonely or discouraging. And the th- whatever it is for you, I can tell you this, whenever you're in the wilderness, um, you never want to be there, <laughs> okay? And sometimes you look back at past wilderness experiences and looking back, you're like, man, I wouldn't trade what I learned for the world for that. But when you're in it, you're like, I'd trade it, <laughs> Yeah, I'd trade it to get out of this. You never want to be in the wilderness. So I want you just to be thinking right now. Some of you, it's not hard at all to identify because you're, you're there. You relate to this. Um, and maybe it's a friend of yours or maybe it's a recent thing you've gone through. Uh, before we look at what, what God has to say to us, I just want to acknowledge um, three particular temptations for us in the wilderness. And next week, we'll look at the temptations of the promised land, which are different but equally powerful temptations. But I want to acknowledge the temptations of the wilderness. Um, I'm going to call these the three Ds of the desert, okay? Three words that start with a D, all right? Here's the first temptation in the wilderness is to move towards disbelief. That is disbelief in God's goodness. When we're in the wilderness, we look around at our circumstances, and there's nothing in our circumstances that would tell us God loves us, right? Circumstantially, it looks like God has just sort of withdrawn his favor from us. And, and, and the temptation is to begin to disbelieve in God's love and care and goodness. To begin to go, God, what, like what is going on? What gives? Like where are you right now, and why aren't you loving me the way that a loving and all-powerful God should love me? And of course, Satan's great strategy in wilderness times, right, is to try to, is to, to, to put doubt in our hearts and our minds about the goodness and love and care of God for us. And this is what he did to the first human beings, Adam and Eve, right? In this amazing garden, why would God keep this good tree from you? What kind of a withholding God keeps things from his kids? And he got them to believe a lie about God. And if he can do that in Eden, then imagine how, how much more powerful that is when he does that in the desert. And of course, that's what he tried to get Jesus to do in the desert. If you're really the son of God, what kind of a father puts his son out in the desert for 40 days to, to hunger and thirst? And we begin to to doubt God's goodness in the wilderness. That's the temptation. And, you know, my experience, so many people who grew up in the church, so many who end up losing their faith, so often it's not over intellectual issues, um, all these ideas. It's, it's often much more practical. Often it is, you know what? Life has not gone the way that I deeply hoped it would go. And so you just kind of pull away from this God that you don't believe in anymore. You don't believe in his love and care for you. So that's a, that's a huge temptation is disbelief. A second temptation is, of course, um, discouragement. And I mean that in the discouragement. In the wilderness, we're tempted to lose our courage. We are tempted to not get up every day and face whatever it is we have to face with courage. We're tempted just to check out, just to, to let fear have its way in us. And rather than step into the fight, right over time, we just get beaten and we just want to pull away and walk away. And we succumb to the fear and we stop fighting. And then thirdly, the, the third temptation is disobedience, right? And, and disobedience, that, that follows from the, when the doubts begin to merge, when the discouragement settles in, and then we are tempted towards disobedience. And usually, the disobedience is usually about trying to, to provide relief 
to the situation we're in. Like, I've been in this, this is painful, I want this to end, and maybe if I do this, I'll do this or this or this, and somehow this will bring relief to the situation. That was, that was Satan's temptation of Jesus, right? Hey, turn these stones into bread. Man, you're hungry, you can solve that really easily. Just turn the stones into bread. And that's usually our temptation, is to do something to just bring relief, but that would be out of what God would want for us. All right, so I know I'm starting on a low note here, um, but I just want to acknowledge um, these are the temptations of the wilderness. And you might recognize these temptations in you. This is what Satan is up to in the wilderness seasons of our lives. This is what he wants to do. Now, my hope today is to actually fill us with hope and to fix our eyes not on that, but on God. And what he is up to in these challenges and trials in our lives, in the wilderness seasons of our lives. And that's what Moses is doing in this passage. He's looking back on this painful experience, this long and painful experience that that Israel went through. But he's looking back through the eyes of faith. And he's saying, let me point you to and remind you of your God who is with you in the wilderness. And let me remind you of what he was up to and what he was doing in you, and what he wants to produce in you through your experience in the wilderness. So what I want to do today, in looking at this passage, I just want to focus entirely on the question of what is God doing here? What is he up to? What is the work that he is doing in his people through the wilderness? So I'm going to just put up two verses today. Um, These are, I think, let's see, verse 2 and 3. Yeah, verse 2 and 3, and I just want to highlight in red God's action, and I'm going to focus on several different verbs for the rest of our time. Here it is. This is verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you. Okay, we're just thinking about what is God doing here? He led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether, you, or whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So I just want to focus on those verbs today and remind us of what God is up to in the wilderness season. So let's, let, let's begin with just with this overarching idea that what is God doing in the wilderness? God is leading. God led you for 40 years, Moses said. And that's the first thing and the most basic thing that we need to know in wilderness seasons, that the wilderness is actually not a time of God's abandonment, which it often feels like. The wilderness is a time of God's leading. It is a time where God is still, and maybe even more so than, leading us and shepherding us through the challenges and the hard times. And and what I want to say this morning is God is leading us in those seasons. That's true regardless of how you ended up in the wilderness. Because we can end up in the wilderness for various reasons, right? Sometimes, it's important to acknowledge, sometimes we end up in the wilderness because of our own really bad choices, right? Right? Um, sometimes you end up in, in a really tough financial situation for years, and it's because you made a lot of unwise, risky financial decisions, and then you have to reap the consequences of those, of those decisions, right? 
Sometimes one or two really, really bad mistakes can put your marriage in crisis mode. You, you did things that landed you in the wilderness, so to speak. And then other times, life just happens and we're thrown into the wilderness uh, for nothing that we've done, right? You, you're performing great at work and you get called in and you're told about a restructure that's happening in the company, right? Or you go in for another routine checkup and, and you get this diagnosis that, that you weren't expecting. It has nothing to do with any decisions you made. You just landed there. And sometimes it's a combination of both. <laughs> I mean, you think of uh, Israel's experience. God led them into the wilderness. He rescued them, brought them there. Uh, and then some really bad decisions of theirs kept them in the wilderness for 40 years. So sometimes it's a combination. And what I want to say this morning is, it, it, honestly, it doesn't really matter how you landed in there, in the wilderness. That God's sovereignty is big enough <laughs> to incorporate all of that. And scripture, the way scripture looks back at events, it sees God's hand in and through all circumstances and decisions. God's work is still being done so that however you landed there, if you're in the wilderness, you can still say in some true way, God has brought me to this place. And he will lead me in this place. He will not abandon me here. The wilderness is not a time of God's abandonment. It is a time of God's leading and his shepherding care for me. And that can give us assurance. So as God leads us through these times, what specifically is he working in his people? I want to look at these other words here, all right? I want to skip humble for a second. I want to start with uh, next, this word, test, okay? We're going to look at God is testing, he's humbling, and he's teaching. Those are the three things that God is up to as he leads us in the wilderness. I want to start with this word, um, test. God, it was testing Israel in the wilderness. And this is a consistent theme of scripture that wilderness seasons are times of testing for God's people. That's true, clearly, for Israel. It was a season of testing. When Jesus was in the wilderness for four days, that is described as a series of uh, as a season of testing. And throughout the New Testament letters, uh, the, the authors talk to Christians who are going through trials and they say, these are tests of your faith. Now, how many of you like taking tests? How many enjoy tests? I mean, so there's a few test takers out there, right? Um, I was just last week with a, a friend who was going back to school for the first time to get a new, another degree in like 15 years. And he was about to take his first test. And I could just feel his anxiety. And I was brought back to like high school anxiety of taking tests. And wilderness times are tests for God's people. Now, what are, what are tests designed for? What, what do tests do? Um, tests reveal what's actually inside, right? Um, tests reveal not what um, you say, you know, or not even maybe what you think you know, <laughs> what you think is inside, right? Tests reveal what's actually inside. And that's what the wilderness is designed to do. It's designed to reveal to us what is inside, not what we say is inside, not what we might even think is inside, but what is actually inside. What actually are my deepest commitments in life? What are my deepest longings? What are my deepest passions and goals and treasures in life? When God's tangible blessings are pulled away, when the, when the external circumstantial blessings are withdrawn, what is left inside of me? When following God is actually harder than not following God, 
what is there inside of me? What's, what's actually in my heart and mind and will? And so we discover a lot about ourselves uh, in the wilderness. And those of you that are in the wilderness right now, I could, we could sit and have a conversation. What are you discovering about yourself right now? What are you learning? What is the test revealing to you about what's inside of you? Um, sometimes what we discover is really good. Sometimes the test reveals, gosh, you know what? This is legit. And so there's more resiliency than I thought. There's more courage. There's more, there's more faith. There's more trust than I thought. And I was thinking of the story of, of Abraham this week where God tested Abraham. God made Abraham wait decades for this child, Isaac, of promise. And then when Isaac was around 10... And, and was, was like the, you know, the apple of Abraham's eyes. God said, all right, now I want you to sacrifice your son. And the scriptures tell us it was a test. And Abraham passed the test. And he discovered something about himself. What he discovered is, wow, I love God more than I love my own son. That's, that's wow, what a confirming, beautiful, amazing experience for him. Uh, and sometimes... Uh, the test reveals some things that are not so good inside, right? Sometimes the test reveals, wow, man, I'm, I'm weaker. <laughs> I'm more selfish. Uh, I am more prone to fear and anxiety than I thought. I'm not quite as courageous and trusting as I had hoped or I maybe even thought I was. I was thinking of the story this week of Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, who followed Jesus for three Years, and uh, the night before Jesus died, he was put to a test. And, um, man, he was pretty impressed with himself up to that point. And um, he was a pretty bombastic, you know, talker. And, and Jesus said, hey, you're going to be put to the test tonight. And, and you remember what Peter said? He's like, Lord, I'll follow you to the death. Like, that's how legit my faith is. I'll go anywhere with you. That night, I've never met this guy. I've never met this guy. I swear on my soul, I've never met this man. And the test revealed, oh my gosh. <laughs> I had a self-inflated view, and I did not realize what was inside. So the test can reveal good things. The test can reveal bad things. Usually the test reveals some sort of combination, right, of, <laughs> of good and bad. And what I want to say, what I want to encourage you with today is let the test reveal what it reveals about yourself to you. And just be open and honest with it. Because whatever it reveals is very good information for you. Because it is true. It is reality. It is who you actually are in that moment. And if you let it, what you learn, and especially if what you learn is discouraging about yourself, if you let it, that knowledge can be the start of a deeper, more intimate relationship with your creator. Where you go, God, wow, this is, this, is, this is me. I didn't realize how much I need you. And I need your grace. And if you cannot hide that, but let it do its work, that be can become this great start to something richer and deeper in your walk with God than you had before. So let the test reveal what it reveals. Which brings me to the second thing that God is doing that is up here. Uh, he is, he, he's taking you through the wilderness to humble you. I think he says it again. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. The wilderness is, is God is at work humbling 
his people. That doesn't sound too fun. It's interesting because, you know, there were circumstances that humbled Israel, right? I mean, being out in the wilderness for 40 years, cold nights, hot days, no food, no water. That's a humbling set of circumstances. But Moses looks back through the eyes of faith and says, actually, it was God himself who was humbling you. It was the hand of God working through circumstances for the express purpose of humbling his people. And that's what God is up to in the wilderness. He's producing humility in his people. And uh, this may not make sense or feel good to us until we come to the firm conclusion that one of our greatest problems is pride. (laughs) One of the greatest problems of the human heart is an overestimation of ourselves. And so the wilderness knocks us around a bit. It cuts us down to size, so to speak, in the best sense of, of that. I was thinking of the story of um, the Apostle Paul this week. And um, my brother and I used to joke growing up, we'd read Paul's letters, and we're like, Paul's just an arrogant dude. Like, I feel like that guy just, that guy was, and turns out he was just pretty righteous, you know. But um, we always thought he was a little arrogant. But I, I think of Paul, this guy who was so gifted um, and had such experiences. And I do think he had a certain personality that was probably tempted towards pride. And I was thinking of the story he tells in 2 Corinthians of the thorn in the flesh that was given to him. And he describes these amazing ex- experiences that God gave him. And the guy was, the, the, right, the most successful evangelist in the world ever. This guy's an amazing theologian. Um, and then God gave him these profound, ecstatic, spiritual experiences. And so his temptation was always towards this overestimation of himself, which would have been almost an accurate estimation because he did some pretty amazing things. And he goes on in that passage to say, but to keep me from becoming conceited. (laughs) To keep me, that is to humble me, a thorn was given to me. By whom? By God. Right? To keep me humble. And we don't know what that was, but it was some circumstantial crisis, some trial, some wilderness experience, maybe some physical, physically painful experience. But it was there for the express purpose of keeping Paul from becoming conceited. And Paul prayed, right? I I prayed again and again, Lord, please take this thing away. And God's answer was, no. I love you. (laughs) No. This is here (laughs) for you, for your good. And and Paul learned through that, right, that that Christ's grace was sufficient for him and, and Christ's power was made perfect in his weakness. And I think humble Paul, was such a better Paul than arrogant Paul. And conceited Paul, as easy as that would have been, would not have been a fruitful Paul for the ministry that God had given him. But a humble and incredibly gifted Paul and a dependent Paul uh, was such a great instrument in God's hands. I've told my own story uh, several times to you all of uh, my own experience in... in, um, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, I went, when I went to seminary in my early 20s, uh, that was, a, that was a, a great wilderness experience. It's actually, they, they get a lot of rain up there, it turns out. But it, I experienced it as a, as a wilderness season. I've told this story before, but I'll share it with you again. I, um, after college, I went to seminary, and I didn't know it at the time as a 23-year, I was probably a 23-year-old guy, but I had an overestimation of myself. Uh, and I have some good false humility, so you never would have guessed it. I'm a pretty humble guy. But in my heart of hearts, I had grand 
plans from, and grand expectations on my life. Um, and I didn't even know how grand they were. And God led me into a three-year wilderness season of uh, anxiety, of depression, of seasonal affective disorder, of um, loneliness, and just and failure. A season of failure where the things that always worked for me no longer worked for me. And it was hard, and it was challenging, and it was frustrating, and it was dark physically, spiritually, emotionally, um, in every way. And, um, and I experienced real failure uh, for the first time in my life in a way that I actually identified as failure. And I, I remember my 25th birthday was the worst birthday I ever had. And I can remember waking up and think, picturing who I imagined myself to be at 25 versus who I actually knew myself to be, how I actually felt about myself and the massive gap <laughs> between those two things. And it was very discouraging and very hard. And I came to my own little emotional bottom, bottoming out point in that, in that season. Uh, but the deep work that God did in that was um, in that place where I felt like a failure, where I felt like I wasn't living up, where I felt like I didn't have what it took to be the man I thought I was supposed to be, where God met me in that place. And he's like, I'm still here. I don't really care. <laughs> I still love you. In fact, I didn't ever love you based off of any of those things that you expected for yourself. Like, that wasn't what, what brought love for you. I love you. You're, you're Dave. You're my beloved. You're, I love you. You're my son. And he began to build back a, another identity, <laughs> not based off of performance or being able to meet an expectation I had of myself, but based off of his love and his favor and his goodness. And I look back on that, and I would not trade that wilderness season for the world. And what I realized was that overestimation, that was so paralyzing to me. That caused such anxiety, because how do you live up to, I mean, I could never have preached a sermon at 25 um, the sermon that I would have to preach, you'd all have to be like weeping right now and repenting of your sins. And you'd have to come to the altar, all of you. Like, that's how good the sermon would have to be. And God humbled me and through humility brought freedom. <laughs> right? The freedom just to be an ordinary dude. It's okay not to be extraordinary. You can be ordinary. And um, so that was the, the most deeply freeing experience of my life. It was also the most deeply humbling experience. And I've learned, I feel like I've learned some stuff about humility in the last 20 years. Uh, certainly, at least the way I experience humility. Um, I, I want to share a couple things. One is this, um, the only way to be, to, maybe I'm just talking about myself, the only way to become humble is to be humiliated. <laughs> that in my experience of life, the only way <laughs> to experience true humility is to be humiliated in some way. And what I mean is, is to have by experience an experience awareness that you're not what you thought you were. And I think, you know, you can learn a certain theological humility through the reading of Scripture in light of who God is, in light of who we are. But at least for Dave Gunlock, the way I learn humility is by being humiliated. <laughs> and uh, I wish it were in a different way, um, but that's how it tends to work for me. And wil the wilderness does that to us. Uh, the other thing I've learned about humility is um, what it does to people. And I find that humble people are much happier than prideful, arrogant people. Humble people recognize all the things in their lives that they do not deserve. 
and they receive them as the gifts that they are in ways that arrogant, prideful people do not. The other thing I notice about humble people is humble people are far more loving than prideful people. Prideful people aren't, aren't particularly fun to be around for very long. They can be interesting and compelling, but as friends, uh, they're not particularly helpful. Humble people are very helpful. They're compassionate. Um, they have empathy. They know what it's like to be in the wilderness. They can be true friends. And so humility is produced in hard times, but humility produces wonderful things in our lives like joy and love, fruits of the Spirit. And humility is not produced in the promised land. Humility is produced in the wilderness, for better or for worse. And that is what God was up to in Israel, humbling them. And that leads me to the third and final one. God is testing, God is humbling, and thirdly, God is teaching. God wanted to teach you. These all, I know, these are different ways of saying the same thing. God is teaching in the wilderness. What is he teaching? Here's what he's teaching in the wilderness. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses talks about the story of God causing them to hunger and then feeding them with manna. Uh, the story of manna in the wilderness is a fascinating story. You think about what God was doing through the giving of manna, right? He leads hundreds of thousands of people into the wilderness. So there they are, uh, and there's no food, and there's no water. Hundreds of thousands of people. And what they learned in that moment was what I would call forced dependency, <laughs> right? Like, a, a, a profound awareness, we do not have what it takes to do this, right? We don't have the resources. We don't have the, the wisdom, the, the direction. We're stuck. We're hundreds of thousands of people, and there's no water. There's nothing we can do about this, right? And we, we cannot envision, through human means, a solution to this problem, Right? Something from the outside, something that we can't anticipate has to happen for us because we don't have it in ourselves to feed ourselves right now. Forced dependence. And then in that moment, God provides manna from the outside, bread from heaven, miracle bread, unexpected bread, bread you could never produce yourself, bread from God. Manna literally means, what is it in Hebrew? Okay? And the word is a testimony. This is not of our own resource. We don't even know what this stuff is. It came out of nowhere. It's miracle bread from the outside from heaven. God brings them to this place where they come to the end of their own resources. And then he provides something they never could have anticipated, never could have predicted, never could have concocted or designed or forged through themselves, but simply receive as this miracle gift from heaven that they've never seen before, that they could not produce themselves. And what they learn is trust and dependence on the Lord. And that is what wilderness times can teach us. That's what God can teach us right? Wilderness times tend to bring us to the end of our own resources, especially when you've been sitting in a wilderness for a long time, whatever that is. Maybe it's a really painful marriage for a long time. Maybe it's cancer, right? 
Maybe it's unemployment. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's a spiritual crisis. Whatever it is, you're in it and you realize my plans, my strategies, my ability to to fix situations or to change people has come to an end. I got nothing left. I don't, I don't, I can't do anything. I'm I'm forced into total dependence on you, God. Only the wilderness takes you to that place. And then sometimes you come to that place and then the manna shows up. And sometimes the manna can be pretty extraordinary and miraculous. I was reminded this week of a story of my friend who was going through a total spiritual crisis in college and that classic doubt. He literally is walking and this piece of paper is on the ground and he picks it up and there is a note basically written from God to him on that piece of paper. It's like manna from heaven. It changed the course of his life. I've heard stories of people where these, these checks show up in the mail, right? For the exact amount of the rent that, that week from this unexpected source or that miracle job that just kind of shows up on your doorstep when you finally gave up searching. Sometimes the man is much less <laughs> dramatic than that, right? Usually it's a lot less dramatic. Sometimes it's just that, it's that passage of Scripture that God takes you to in that moment that is exactly what your soul needed to hear. Or it's that friend who, who shows up or calls unexpectedly in that moment and is, is such a godsend and an encouragement to you. Or it's that unexpected change of heart and that person you finally stop trying to fix yourself. Or maybe it's just this unexpected strength to keep on going. It's some form of, of help from the outside, <laughs> Manna, what is it? I didn't expect it. I didn't anticipate I couldn't create it myself. And yet, God, this is this gift that you give us. And you see it. And some of you could tell stories of manna. And you see it. And you know, oh my gosh, God, that is so obviously you. That's so obvious of you're doing. I could never have done this. And you waited for me to come to that point in order to now give this to me now. And I'm realizing, oh my gosh, you are good. You are here. You haven't abandoned me. You're providing in the wilderness for me. I had nothing and you showed up. You provided manna. But, and I'll, this is the point, the deeper point is this, it's actually not about the manna. <laughs> Here's what it's about. God is teaching you that actually man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that flows, comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's not really about the manna. It's about every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's about a faithful God who speaks words of truth always. Whatever he says is true. And so if he says, I'm going to provide bread for you, he's going to provide bread for you. And when you have an experience of that bread and you see it, it gives you a greater trust in the person who gave you the bread. But he's like, I gave you the bread not just to fill your bellies with food. I gave you the bread to fill your hearts with trust. Not in just my word that says I'll give you bread that says whatever I say you can trust. And my experience of the tangible manna helps me realize maybe I can trust you in everything. I mean, if I can trust you in the wilderness, maybe I can trust every single word that comes from your mouth. Maybe I can trust all of your promises. Maybe I can trust you when you say there's now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when you say, I will never leave you or forsake you, or say, I'm working in all things for your good. And can trust your commands. I can trust that your commandments will lead to life and not rob me of life. It's the experience of manna that points me beyond the manna to every word that comes from your mouth. And I can trust everything you've said. And this experience in the wilderness has given me a concrete taste of your goodness and your faithfulness. And so you're teaching me dependence on everything you say and everything you do all the time. That's the deep lesson of manna. So there it is. The wilderness. No one ever wants to be there. But it is a place of God's leading. Testing us, humbling us, teaching us trust and dependence. Which is to say what Romans 8 says. Working in all things for our good. Verse 16 says this. Look at verse 16. I'll end with this. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you. Why? So that in the end, it might go well with you. Right? So that in the end, you might become the kinds of people that God has created you to be. The New Testament would say, so that he might conform us to the image of his son. So that we might become people who are no longer prideful uh, and self-reliant, comfort-seeking, selfish, unloving people that we are all tempted to be. But he would be changing us, transforming us to humble, compassionate, courageous, wise, trusting, and especially loving sons and daughters of the king. And that happens not in the promised land. That happens in the wilderness. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we acknowledge your presence with us right now. And I... I, I pray especially for those in this room who are in the thick of the wilderness. People with health issues. People who have just lost loved ones. People experiencing great financial difficulty. Marital and relational difficulty. All sorts of uh, depression and addiction. Confusion. Spiritual questions. Lord, might we submit ourselves to your loving care. Would you move in our hearts through your spirit that like sheep, we would let you lead us. And help us to know what does that even mean? How do we let you lead us through wilderness times? What, what, what does that even mean? I pray that you would help us to see what that looks like for each one of us in this particular season. I pray that you give comfort and encouragement to those who are suffering and who are, who are grieved, who are lonely, who are anxious and fearful right now, Lord. Would your spirit draw near to their hearts? In their core, would they know um, of your love, of your goodness, and of your hand 
your sovereign hand holding them up through this season. May they surrender to that and trust you to lead them through this season, Lord. Even now as we celebrate communion, might this be a time where we all draw near to you and you draw near to us in ways that we need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.